Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Happy Sabbath, Loma Linda University Church and friends. As you can see, things are different yet again this week. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? So much happening in the, in the world around us, in the country around us, the state, the city, and in our community. So we're going to be joining you for, this, for the coming period of time, probably this way. I don't know for how long or how much longer this will last. We're praying that it won't be long. But just know that we will continue to worship together as a Loma Linda University Church community. So I have to ask you, are you feeling anxious, feeling anxiety? With all that's happening in the world around us, there's ample reason to feel it. The truth is, and I've shared this with you before, anxiety and I have been on a first-name basis over the years. But as I was thinking about it at this particular point in time, I realized, and I'm actually very happy about this, I realized that we've kind of drifted apart over the years. I don't see him nearly as often. And the reason for that are the concepts contained in what I'd like to share with you today from Scripture. But before getting there, let me just say that if you are feeling anxious, not only do you have some real reason to feel that way, but you also are not alone. In fact, the presence of anxiety has grown significantly over recent decades. So I want to read to you something from the psychologist Robert Leahy, writing in a book called Anxiety Free, Unravel Your Fears Before They Unravel You. It's a good title, isn't it? He talks about over the last six or seven decades what has happened to anxiety. Here's what he says. The average American child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. Now just let that sink in for a bit. The average level of anxiety a child today feels same as the average psychiatric patient in the 50s. Then he continues. We live in the age of anxiety. We have become a nation of nervous wrecks. Well, I think Leahy is probably exactly right. And what we're currently facing with the coronavirus only amplifies that, deepens it, intensifies it. So I ask you, are you you feeling anxious today? Have you felt anxious in recent weeks? It's not just the coronavirus. Because along with that have come a whole range of other realities. An uncertain economy, a Wall Street that has gone up and down, people being fearful about their jobs. How are we going to make it? How are we going to pay the bills? There are a lot of reasons to feel anxious. I was interested to read in a book excerpt I read quite some time ago now from Daniel Gilbert. 
Uh, he, he, in opening his book, is writing to professors, and he's suggesting that they need to find a way to finish what he calls the sentence. The sentence. So he says these eight words in the sentence need to be finished in a specific way, and it will give us an insight into how we believe, how we think, into what our worldview is. What are those eight words? The human being is the only animal that... The human being is the only animal that... And then he says, fill in the blanks. How would you finish that sentence? Well, he finishes it in an interesting way. Here are his words. The human being, he says, is the only, only animal that thinks about the future. The only animal that thinks about the future. Human beings, he says, think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. That's what Gilbert believes. Now, he has had people suggest to him, well, what about the squirrels? They're hunting and gathering and bearing for a rainy day. What about ants? They do their work. Gilbert wipes all that aside with a brush of the hand. He says, that's instinctual. I'm talking about people actually thinking about the future. Human being is the only one. I finish his words with this. The average adult spends 12% of the day thinking about the future roughly one out of every eight hours. We can imagine events years into the future. If more than several minutes are involved, no animal can keep up with us. What do you think? Would you agree with him? The human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. It's because of that, as I reflected on it, it's because of that that we do feel anxious. In fact, I've told counselees of mine over the years, over a lot of years, counselees in this very office, I've told them that I think that all anxiety, now I know we're not supposed to generalize, maybe I should say most anxiety, but I think that a great deal of anxiety can be traced to two words, two simple words. In other words, if you're feeling anxious inside, and if you follow that path, of anxiety all the way to the trailhead, all the way to where it began, I think you'll find two words at the trailhead. And those two words are these. What if? What if? What if I don't pass boards? What if we can't make the mortgage payment? What if our child doesn't make it back safely from Honduras? What if I catch the coronavirus? What if, what if, what if? And the more unanswered what ifs we have, the higher goes our level of anxiety. So right now, the time in which we're living is fertile soil for feeling anxious. People feel anxious because we're thinking about the future. What about this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, next month? What if? So what are we supposed to do about that? Does Scripture have any wisdom, any counsel on this? In a very personal way, why is it that anxiety and I have drifted apart over the years? Well, I want to take you to a passage. It's actually one of my favorite passages. You know, I was thinking about that as I was working on this. I thought, 
I think every week I say this is one of my favorite passages, so <laughs> forgive me for that. I do have a lot of favorite passages in Scripture. But I think this is one of my favorites from many, many years ago. It's found in the epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there right now. 1 Peter 5. Now, before we come to reading the passage, a little bit of context. So Peter is writing to people in the Mediterranean world of his day who are Christ followers and whose lives have become increasingly dangerous as the connection between Judaism and Christianity has, has been not totally severed, but as it has drifted more widely apart, as Christianity has become known in the Roman Empire for being its own unique faith, as Christians have refused to claim that Caesar is Lord, they have become increasingly under attack. And so when Peter is written, when First Peter is written, it's being written to people who are suffering persecution, whose lives are endangered, whose futures are uncertain, in fact, who have abundant reason to be asking the questions that begin with those two words. What if? Abundant reason for that. So he's writing to people who know what it is to have reason to feel anxious, to have reason to feel fear. It's, it's a book worth reading on that account. But as we come to chapter 5, he then turns his, his, his eye more specifically toward the elders, the ones who are leading the flock, and he's giving them some wisdom and counsel. And in essence, he's saying, if you live your lives this way, then those who follow you will be much more prone to living their lives in this way. And in the process of doing that, he turns his sights toward this emotion, this experience of fear and anxiety. So what we're going to read is very short, but I want to point you to two things in what we're going to read, because I think there's something that Peter wants us to do, first of all, and then secondly, I think there's something that Peter wants us to know. That's the second thing. So watch for those two. He wants us to do. He wants us to know. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's in particular that second verse, 1 Peter 5, 7, that I'm noting today. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So the first thing, something Peter wants us to do. He wants us to cast all our anxieties on him, that is on God. He wants us to bring all our anxieties to the feet of Jesus and cast them there, throw them there. That's an interesting word he uses that the English version typically, many of the English versions translate it with the word cast or casting. It's a strong word. It's a vigorous word. It literally means to grab something and to throw it. In fact, as I was reading about the meaning of the word, the picture that came to mind for me was the picture of a rancher. 
He's out on his ranch. He's concerned to feed his, his horses, his livestock. And so he's going to load the truck up, the big bed of the pickup truck, or as we used to say back in Texas, the pick-em-up truck. He's going to load it up with bales of hay. Now, those bales, I understand, can weigh, depending on their size, anyway, from 60 to 120 pounds. And so as we watch that rancher, he's grabbing those bales of hay, and he's hoisting them and throwing them with his strength, with his might, throwing them all the way into the bed of the truck. He's casting them there, if we use the term that Peter uses. That's the picture that came to mind for me because that's the, the assertive energy that Peter wants us to think about, wants us to engage in when it comes to this matter of casting all our anxiety on Jesus. Throw it there. Don't pick it back up. Put your energy into it. Now, that's hard to do. For some reason, we want to hold on. We want to nurture our worry. We want to care for our anxiety. In fact, thinking about that brought another image to mind. It's kind of curious, isn't it, over the years, uh, the images that implant themselves in our mind and come back to us later. This particular image came from the time when I was in my mid to late teen years, and we were living in Guatemala City, Central American country of Guatemala. The way we got around as, as kids in that day and time was typically on the public transportation system. We climb onto the bus and ride it to the gym or ball field or wherever it was that we were going. The buses were often older. They were crowded. They weren't the easiest to sit in, but we tended to enjoy it. it gave us a chance to get out to see the city. My older brother John and I, we wouldn't sit together because we were hoping that a pretty girl would come and sit down beside us. <laughs> uh, he usually won that game. But I remember being on the bus one day. When it jolted to a stop at one of the bus stops, and I watched a woman clamber up the steps onto the bus. She was a sight that we saw often in Guatemala City. She wasn't very tall. She was rather rotund. She was dressed in the garb of the indigenous people of Guatemala. And then on top of her head, she had a large basket full of fruit. Now, you tell me how they balanced those on their heads, and then we'll both know, because I have no idea how they did it. But they did it. They would have that basket perched on their heads, and off they would go at a fast clip. Well, she came up the steps of that bus, clambered up the steps, paid her fare, and came down the middle aisle of that bus toward where I was seated with that large and, I'm sure, heavy basket of fruit on her head. The bus lurched off, and she's grabbing seats to make it down, finally found herself an aisle seat, plopped down, and then she removed that big basket and plunked it right down in her lap. And then we proceeded to drive on the bus route. And I remember looking at her, watching her, thinking, I wonder why she's clinging so tightly to that heavy load. Even at that point, as a teenager, the thought crossed my mind. You know, ma'am, the bus can carry you and your load, too. You don't have to keep carrying the load when the bus is already carrying you. Well, that's exactly what Peter's saying here. 
Cast all your anxieties on Him. Don't cling to them. Let them go. So I guess the question I want to raise then is, why do we cling to them? Why do we hold on to our anxieties? I think Peter would suggest in this context that we hold on to our anxieties because we're proud. Because of our pride. In fact, you saw it in verse 6. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So Peter is tying together humility, the choice to humble ourselves, and anxiety-free life, the choice to cast our cares on him. He's tying them together. Why would he do that? Well, I like the way the New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner answers that question. Let me read you a quote from Schreiner from his commentary on First and Second Peter and Jude. Schreiner writes this, The NIV, New International Version, begins verse 7 with a command. Cast all your anxiety. The Greek text, however, says Schreiner, uses the participle casting. In other words, rather than cast all your care, the Greek text is really saying casting all your care. And hence, the New American Standard Bible represents a better translation, casting all your anxiety upon him. Now we ask, why does it matter? Well, Schreiner's going to answer that. The participle should be understood as an instrumental participle. Don't get lost in the trees. And it explains how believers can humble themselves under God's strong hand. So how is that? Schreiner continues. Seeing the relationship between the main verb, humble yourselves, and the participle, casting all your anxiety upon him, is important because it shows that giving in to worry is an example of pride. The logical relationship between the two clauses is as follows. Believers humble themselves by casting their worries on God. Conversely, if believers continue to worry, they are caving into pride. How can anxiety and worry be criticized as pride? We can see that it might be a lack of faith, but does it make sense to identify worry as pride? Here's how Schreiner answers. Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all life. As Gopelt says, affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs us from God. So think about the point Schreiner makes. What he's saying is this. When we feel anxiety, when we hold on to anxiety, what we're saying is, I'm the only one that can fix this. I'm the only one that has the ability, the strength, the insight, the wisdom to make this work out. And if I can't do it, then we really have reason to worry. Pride, says Schreiner. Maybe that's why Peter begins the passage by saying, humble yourselves, first of all. 
I love the way one of the Scottish preachers I've listened to over the years, Alistair Begg, illustrates this. He says, picture yourself on an airline flight. And so that wasn't hard for me to do. So picture yourself. Many of you travel. So picture yourself as an anxious traveler. You're filled with anxiety about it. Maybe it's in the here and now. We've got all this coronavirus in the air, and so you're already worried about flying. Now you're even more worried about it because you're going to be encased in a cylindrical aluminum tube hurtling through the air with other people who might be sick. So, so you're worried. So finally the day comes. You get to the gate. You finally board the plane. Your anxiety's there in your chest. You make your way down the aisle. Find your row, 23. Find your seat, B, on the aisle. You check for the exit seats. You have a clear path to the exit seat should you need it. And then you pretty well douse yourself and your seat and your armrests and everything around you, everyone around you with, with hand sanitizer to make sure you won't get sick. You sit back and you grip the arms and you wait for the flight to begin. It begins. That jet hurtles down the runway, heads into the air, climbs for 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, and then it levels off. And when it levels off, you're still gripping your armrests. The pilot's voice is heard throughout the cabin. Friends, we've leveled off, says Captain Smith. We've leveled off at our cruise altitude of 34,000 feet. Looks like we're going to have a clear flight to Dallas, two hours and 34 minutes. No storms on the way. Temperature in Dallas is great, about 72 degrees. Very light breeze, sunny day. So everything is in great shape. Our cabin crew will attend to you. So, he says, and then come the lines. Anybody who's flown knows these lines. He says, so, sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Now, right there, you have a choice to make. Are you going to do what the pilot said? Sit back, relax, let go of the armrests, and rest and enjoy the flight to Dallas? Or are you going to hang on to the armrest with the intent of flying that plane from 23B? That's the question. The truth is simple. Nothing you do in seat 23B is going to affect the flight. Nothing. So you've got a choice. Admit that it is out of your control. And trust. Or keep trying to control what you cannot control. That is what Peter is speaking to. Cast all your anxieties on him. That's where you leave them. So two things in this passage. Peter wants us to do something. Cast our, all our anxieties on Jesus. But then secondly, Peter wants us to know something. He wants us to know something. Again, back to that one verse, 1 Peter 5, 7. I'm reading from the TNIV, today's New International Version. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because, that's an important word right there. 
Because Peter recognizes we're not going to be able to cast our anxieties on him without any knowledge of whether or not the person on whom we're casting our anxieties has our best interest in mind. If you give the deepest realities, concerns, and fears of your heart, if you share them, if you give them to somebody who doesn't care a whit about you, you've accomplished nothing. And the truth is, there have been questions, many questions over the millennia, over the centuries, about the person on whom we're casting all our anxieties, all our cares. Think about it. If you peruse the pages of this book, you'll find that. You'll find that in the book of Job, as Job is sitting listening to friends, friends who are trying to convince him that he's suffering because of what he did, and Job racks his mind, searches his conscience, trying to figure out, what did I, I didn't do anything. And if you read the text of Job, there to me appears to be this unwritten question, though in some cases it's spoken, does God care? Read Habakkuk. Habakkuk, who looks at his nation around him in deep distress. Look at Habakkuk as he asks God, why aren't you doing something? How do you let us continue to suffer like this? Why don't you act? The subtext there, does God care? Or look at the Psalms. Go to the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with that question. The psalmist who write in such elegant, lyrical language, the deepest emotions and experiences of the heart and soul. One of the questions they ask time and again is that question, God, do you care? Are you going to sit there in silence forever? Aren't you going to act? Are you going to let me be chased around the country, says David, like a wild rabbit running for its life, and you don't act? Don't you care? It's a deep question. And if God doesn't care, then we truly do have reason for anxiety. This past summer, Anita and I had the opportunity to visit a place that was, wow, I'm not even sure how to put it into words. It was compelling and it was distressing in the extreme. It was a place called Auschwitz-Birkenau. Auschwitz-Birkenau was the killing camp that the Nazis had not too far, about an hour's drive now, outside of Krakow, Poland. We arrived there on those sacred grounds, grounds made sacred by the hundreds of thousands of lives. 1.1 million, it is believed, to be sacrificed there. We walked along the train track, the entrance. We saw that scene that we've so often seen in pictures where the cattle cars arrived, where they disgorged their occupants where they were marched down and then to the right, where they were stripped of their clothing, told they were going into the showers, and then walked to their deaths. It was a profoundly sobering experience. 
to walk among the Auschwitz buildings where the prisoners had been kept, where they suffered, and to wonder how many prisoners in this place asked that question, does God care? If he doesn't, then we truly have cause for anxiety. I don't have the answers to all of those questions, profound, enduring questions. In fact, I don't think it will be until we are in the presence of God that we may get some understanding. But the truth is, evil never has a good explanation. We just want to know that God is good and that God cares and that God has a plan. And the pages, the latter pages of this book, particularly when we turn to books with titles like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give us an answer. Because they tell us that God cared enough to wrap Himself in human flesh. They tell us that God cared enough to be born as a baby, subject to hunger and thirst and cold and heat. They tell us that God cared enough to live up and to choose the life of an itinerant, poor, and humble rabbi. They tell us that God cared enough to give us a new, unenduring, an eternal picture of what He's like in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And these books tell us that God cared enough about us that He went to a place called Golgotha, and experienced in extremis the emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual pain that any of us would ever experience. That's how much God cares. He cares enough, says this book, to have a plan. To have a plan that says suffering and death are never the end of the story. They're always the comma, never the period. He cares enough to say the day will come when a new heaven and a new earth will be established. And we will be in the presence of God. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And all things are made new. That's how much He cares. That's why Peter can say in this immortal passage, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's what he wants you to know. He wants you to know that God cares for you. I love the J.B. Phillips rendering of this passage. J.B. Phillips, decades ago now, trying to do what so many others have tried, that is to put the ancient Greek text into accessible English language. Said it this way, we cast all our anxieties on him, said Phillips. And then this is how he rendered what God wants you to know. Because you are his personal concern. 
You are his personal concern. That's right. You who sit there today, worshiping God, huddled at home, trying to shelter, trying to be safe, and yet who inside find the anxiety gnawing away at your peace. Will I pass boards? Will I be able to finish this year's school? Will I keep my job? How will we pay the rent? How will we make the house payment? What about the diagnosis? Is it going to come back positive? What's going to happen to us? Will our world ever get back to the way it was? There you huddle at home with all the what-if questions, feeling anxious, and maybe experiencing the deepest question of all. Does God care? The answer has been eternally made clear at a hill called Calvary. God cares. And that's why Peter, one whom we believed was there at that time, can say, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Something he wants you to do, but not to do mindlessly. Something he wants you to know. Because in knowing that, you are set free to be able to cast your anxieties on him. So my anxiety-stricken friend, with all kinds of good reasons to feel anxious today, Peter wants you to do something because there's something that Peter knows that he wants you to know. He wants you to cast all your anxiety on Jesus because you, you, are his personal concern. Gracious God, these are anxious days, uncertain times, tumultuous events. Lord, there are many reasons to look at what we face and feel stricken with anxiety. But Lord, let us know that there is one who cares so deeply that he numbers the hairs of our head, cares so deeply that he sees when the sparrow falls, cares so deeply that he sees into each troubled heart today. God, would you bring peace to that person? Would you give them the strength to cast that anxiety on the one who has made them his personal concern? For all this we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.